When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Fish Bites, the Miami Herald's Miami Marlins show. I'm Andre Fernandez, deputy sports editor, your host, along with Jordan McPherson, Miami Marlins beat writer, who now joins us from another stop on the road. This one he has been to before. This is not one of the ballparks you have left the cross off. You're very familiar with Miller Park. How you doing, Jordan? How's Milwaukee? Well, uh, the about two hours I've been here so far, it's been very rainy. It's I mean, South Florida obviously understands what it's like for it to be raining all the time, but it's just, it's that steady rain where it's not drizzling, but it's just enough to be annoying. So luckily I'm close enough to the ballpark, knocking this out and then getting ready for another pivotal series for this Marlins team as they try to stay in the playoff hunt. So, so since Miller Park has a roof, basically what you're saying is this is just screwing up your beer runs and your and your food runs at this point, right? Yeah, well, I probably wasn't going to do anything today. That was going to be probably tomorrow or Wednesday just because of the quick get-in and then knocking this out and everything else I usually do on, on Mondays, regardless of whether I'm home or on the road. But Tuesday or yeah. Wednesday, it's probably whether or not it's going to going to happen. It was science. You'll be fine. I was there a few years ago in, in April when it was snow on the ground and ice everywhere. Mm-hmm. So this is a better time of year for you to be there. Anyway. Yeah, so no you, doubt about it. You'll be fine. <laughs> but who, uh, I'll tell you who's not fine. And unfortunate, it's an unfortunate time for this to happen. Sandy Alcantara, who unfortunately went to the injured list and uh, Jorge Soler, of course, as well. But really, let's talk about who has to, let's talk about who has to step up, of course, but at the same time, it's a shame because you you get to this point. And we saw flashes of Sandy being the old Sandy, and now this is a tough one because you're still not just forget about the playoff hunt, but let's say they do get there, you're without your ace going in there potentially in the playoffs. And that that's gonna hurt a lot. Yeah, it definitely does. So Sandy Alcantara, he went on the 15 day injured list on Wednesday with a right forearm flexor strain, is how the team described it. Uh, the basics of it, we don't have a full timetable on yet. He's not throwing at the moment, although Skip did say over the weekend in Philly that he could begin playing catch soon, which to me is the best case scenario this year that he'd be throwing after just a few days of being sidelined, but still haven't actually seen him throw yet. So again, I'm holding off anything in turn until we know exactly what's going on. And the Marlins are at this point are just preparing for what potentially could be the rest of the season, which is about a month without Sandy, which it's tough when, again, he was their workhorse, whether the results were there or not, he was still that steady piece in the rotation that is still filled with a lot of young guys. As we've talked about week after week, where they're trying to monitor innings they're using a six man rotation to make sure that Jesus Lazardo is good for the long run. Braxton Garrett's good for the long run. Uh, Yuri Perez is good for the long run run uh edward cabrera who is back he ended up replacing sandy on the roster when the il move happened that he's ready for the long run but without sandy it just 
it makes things that much more difficult to figure things out. They're still going with a six-man rotation. It's just how they're – it's just they're going with some bullpen days using guys, using bulk guys at this point. Uh, obviously, they still have Lazardo, Braxton Garrett, uh, Yuri Perez, and Johnny Cueto are their main four. Uh, Edward Cabrera, interestingly enough, his first time out, they used an opener for him before he came in and threw four shutout innings. And then they've used then they're using Brian Hoeing in the second opener spot, which they've done a couple times. Brian Hoeing feels more comfortable coming out of the bullpen and can still give the multiple innings. So it makes sense and it's understandable for that part of it. But it's still you don't really have that backup plan anymore. You're basically down to your main guys at this point in the rotation. And you lost arguably your Obviously, your best pitcher, he was the Cy Young Award winner last year. Results or whatever he did this year, obviously, were not great, but you still know what you're going to get. You still know you're going to get six, seven innings from Sandy, no matter what, and it helps the bullpen, which is now going to probably be relied on a lot more with these younger guys who most likely getting capped at six innings if everything goes perfectly. So now you're going to be seeing a lot more multiple inning type things out of the pen or more guys being used on a more consistent basis down the stretch, which – they were getting out of that juncture with Sandy doing well and some of the other guys stepping up. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they go through. They survived the first turn without him. They went four and two this past week without Sandy taking two or three against the Dodgers, two or three against the Phillies. Now we have to see if they're able to maintain that as they get through, as they begin the second turn without Sandy Alcantara. Yeah. And I mean, that's where, again, you know, the, the complete games are good and you, you, you love to see that, He's a kind of the throwback to those to that kind of a pitcher that can endure. But at the same time, you always have a little bit of concern about the usage. And you hope it's not too serious in the long term. You want him to be a part of this for a while now. And it's kind of a – yeah, you have to balance now what's best for, for him too, you know, because you don't want to – you don't want to rush him back and then risk something worse and then you lose your ace for, for the long run. But looking at that, you know, overall, some of these guys in the rotation have stepped up. They have had good years. And like you said, they're going to have to kind of keep an eye on both, you know, the the innings levels as well as performance, not just that. But um, for Jorge Soler going on the impact, I mean, obviously they on the IL, I'm sorry, the impact of that is you lose that big bat. You lose that power that had been there the whole season and been such a big part of this lineup. So who do you kind of see there kind of filling in, especially these next few few games? I mean, right now, this trip you're on right now, with Milwaukee is, is no joke. And then, of course, you know, here come the Braves in Miami right after that. Hey, the one thing I will say is the Marlins on this current 10-game run that they're going on, the four-game sweep against the Nationals, taking two or three against L.A. and taking two or three against Philly. Solaire only played in one of those games. And right. that game, he went 0 for 4 with – or, sorry, 0 for 2 with two walks again in the, one of the wins against the Dodgers. So the Marlins, they've been – again, they've won eight of their last 10, including – taking two or three against two of the top teams in the National League. And they've done it with basically a complete collective effort. I mean, looking just running down a few names, Brian De La Cruz, three home runs, 10 RBI over the last 10 games, including go-ahead home run on Sunday against Philly. Jazz, three home runs, two doubles, nine ribbies, seven runs scored in 10 games. Jesus Sanchez, three home runs, seven ribbies, seven runs scored over 10 games. Jake Berger, four home runs. Uh, Garrett Hampson, two home runs, four RBI, hitting 321 over nine games. Josh Bell hitting 308. Luis Arise finally coming back to himself. He's hitting 351 
over this 10-game stretch, didn't play on Sunday, had a foul ball off his foot late in the game on Saturday, and they just gave him a complete day off. But you're seeing a complete effort from the lineup. You're seeing the collective effort more so than just relying on the one big bat to make it happen. And again, 3, 6, 9, 13, 14, 15, 17, 18, 19 home runs over their last 10 games where they've gone 8 and 2. Zero of those coming from Jorge Soler. And to see a lot of the collective slug out of this group without the main guy who you're expecting to see the slug from, that's a very positive sign to show that they're able to sustain without him. And it also goes back to, again, the Josh Bell, Jake Berger required. Uh, trade acquisitions. The two of them, they have five of the home runs. They have four doubles. They have, or sorry, five. They have nine RBI between the two of them. It's my 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 bad on that. Nine RBI and five home runs between the two of them. And again, you're seeing you're seeing up and down the lineup guys who are contributing. Even guys who like again, I go back to Brian Dale Cruz and Jesus Sanchez being the main two that I want to highlight here because. Everything goes back. Always the talk always centers around Luis Arise with the batting title, Jorge Soler with the slug, Jazz being Jazz, and then Jake Jake Berger and Josh Bell being the big boys that they acquired the deadline. De La Cruz and Sanchez entered the year as us thinking they're going to be platooning in left field most likely with obviously El Garcia and right and Jazz in center. They're your two everyday corner outfielders now. And De La Cruz, I wrote about him on to start Monday. He's sort of beginning to prove that he can be an everyday guy. He's among the top 25, top 30 in MLB in terms of doubles, in terms of he has 19 home runs this year, which is second on the Marlins, only the Solaire. He had that great run through June and now struggled a little bit July and August, then finally heating back up in September. You're seeing that with him. And then Jesus Sanchez, a power lefty who's learning how to just take what the game's giving him and not just swing for the fences every single time. If the two of them are able to hone things in and be quality guys in the five, six, seven spots in the lineup, it just gives the Marlins more length that they're definitely going to need now, especially with Jorge Soler sidelined indefinitely. Yeah, both guys, I mean, they've benefited from being in better in a better lineup. And at the same time, those things that they're doing have made it a better lineup too, more balanced, a little more options there. I'm not worried about that. Like, I'm not, I'm not worried about so much you're right like the solar thing i am worried about not having your veteran you're your, not veteran but you know what i mean like you're your yeah. more experienced guy on this club, guy he's the could, veteran again let's yeah, just call he really him is. he's the veteran he really here. i guess i guess as i still think of sandy as, the, as a young pitcher overall and like league-wide but but yeah i mean not only that but a guy who can save your bullpen so many innings when he's on that i'm telling you that if that if he's not there if he doesn't come back and Let's. I know we don't know a timetable for certain, but with pitchers just shutting you down already for a couple of weeks, three weeks, whatever it is, then obviously requires a ramping up period again. So that's going to take time. So let's just say it's game one, where you are right now, maybe, or at Wrigley Field or whatever. Who's on the mound for the Marlins in game one? And not only that, who are your top three guys that you roll with in the postseason? If, you, if, if you're Jordan McPherson doing their – Pencil, you know, writing in their rotation right now. Who are your top three? Uh, number one for me at this point, if Sandy's not there, it has to be Jesus Lozardo. To me, there's mm-hmm. almost no debate there at this point. He's been probably their most consistent pitcher this whole season. He's having a breakout here. I've actually started breaking down some of the numbers with him. He's among the top, basically top 10 in the National League and top five in some cases in ERA, uh, 
strikeout percentage, he is, I believe he's in the top five across all of baseball. Let me actually, I believe I have those numbers right here. He's, but I mean, just in general, he's been hands down one of the more consistent guys. He has 10 outings this year of at least six innings, giving up one run or fewer. He's close. He has 181 strikeouts on the year and 155 innings. Uh, that's a 28. He has a 28.2% strikeout rate, which is fifth in the National League. Uh, yeah, 15 total quality starts, 10 starts with at least six innings with one run, one run or fewer. Only five player pitchers in the National League have more. Uh, swing and miss rate 31%. His slider specifically, swing and miss rate 50.6%. Only Spencer Strider has a better swing and miss rate on a slider than Jesus Lazardo. And again, he's just, he's, we saw these flashes at the end of last year when he came back from his forearm injury and he just carried it over into this year. And he's shown the durability this year. He's going into uh, start 29 about a few hours after we record this. So his outing will impact these numbers a little bit, but he's on pace to go for 30 starts for the first time in his career. He has a chance. He's 19 strikeouts away from the Marlins single season record for strikeouts by a lefty, 200 by outlier. He could potentially become just the second Marlin lefty to ever get 200 strikeouts in the season. But so, yeah, so Jesus Lazardo, long story short, Jesus Lazardo is my number one. Yeah, number two, I think a pretty, yeah. pretty, easy, pretty easy pick with the kind of season yeah. he's had. But yeah, who, who goes the second day? If he's available, and again, I know the Marlins are monitoring him to make sure he's available, I would be going with Yuri Perez at number two. I would basically go similar to what Don Mattingly did in the 2020 season. Have your best guy in the mound game one, hope you get the win, and then have the younger guy in game two. They did Sixto Sanchez game two against the Cubs. Right, the Sixto variation yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. So, and again, in, in terms of just pure stuff with who you have, Yuri and Edward Cabrera are your two and three in terms of stuff, which also makes game three the interesting part because they used an opener for Edward Cabrera during his first outing back. And I'm curious to see if they keep doing that the rest of the way just to see – his comfort level coming out of the bullpen and being well, remember, that's yeah. right. I was going to say, cause I was going to set up the table after the, the second person you said, the second pitcher you said, and say, now your season's on the line in a one, one. Now, who do you trust with? And then yeah. you do that again. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Do they do that at the opener strategy with the season yeah. on the line in a game three? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know, but also it could set up the point where they have Braxton Garrett start game three and then you have the opposite looks between the crafty lefty and the hard-throwing righty. Right. And basically have the two of them piggybacking one way or the other. Right. Braxton has experience coming out of the bullpen. Edward's starting to get experience coming out of the bullpen. Yeah. You can basically pick who you feel the most comfortable with depending on what the opposing lineup is. And that gives you right. a creativity option for game three. And, and, and depending on how Braxton looks that day or how exactly. he's pitching the first inning or so, that'll depend on how long you keep him in there too. It doesn't exactly. have to be one inning. So. Exactly. But Braxton too. I mean, he's had he's made a lot of strides this year. We, you know, the added pitch, everything that it really took him to another level that I think you know really surprised a lot of people. I mean, remember this guy? We thought he went from before the injury when he first got drafted way back to can he is he a fringe major league pitcher? Is he that good? This that and now look at him. Now I mean, this is a guy that now you're talking about putting him in there in in the most pressure packed situation with the season on the line. On the road in Game Three, I mean that 
take if you take a second to think back the the, the history of Bra- the, the track record and the history of Braxton Garrett to say he'd be put in that scenario if it did happen that's pretty remarkable considering the journey he's been on. Yeah, and even just this year, I mean, he was the odd man out of the rotation coming out of spring training. He was the long man to start the year and didn't get into the rotation until Johnny Cueto got hurt. Right. So they he had to basically – he needed somebody else to get injured in order to be able to get into the role and have that opportunity to establish himself this year. Heck, he got optioned down to the minor leagues after they had to use him as a long guy in the first series. And then Cueto gets hurt in his first start of the season, and then – they immediately call him up and go, okay, you're in the rotation, Braxton. Show us what you got. And wow. he's been – obviously, I mean, the Marlins have had a lot of under-the-radar breakthrough stories here this season, and Braxton Garrett has been my favorite to watch develop over this entire year. Again, he's show, he showed flashes at times when he got called up during the 2020 season and then a little bit in the role his role in 2021 and 2022. But to see him go – basically become a full-time, full-fledged member of this rotation this year has been great to see, and it just solidifies things even moving forward. Because, again, we're talking about Sandy going down. Again, they have other guys, Trevor Rogers. That was another guy who was supposed to be part of this group, and Braxton being there to help fill in one of those voids, it just gave the Marlins something that if Braxton didn't produce the way he is, who knows where they would be right now. Yeah, it would be uh... – a lot scarier to think of a lack of depth that they'd have in the rotation at this point without the emergence of what he's done. Um, let's look at the, let's look forward here a second uh, th- after uh, the sweep of the Nets in four straight, won four of the next six to take both series with the Dodgers and the Phillies without Sandy, without, with Solera, like you said, playing in just one game. And now they're only they're they're still half a game back, but they're right there in the fight. I mean, if this doesn't, if they don't, it shows you how much you have to win down the stretch. Because we were talking about how they sort of stayed afloat, you know, losing a few games before. Now it's the other way around. If they hadn't done as well as they did, we're probably talking. We're we're not even having this conversation right now about playoffs or anything like that. We're we're, we're already probably looking at twenty twenty fours and lamenting uh, it's another year that they missed the playoffs. Right now they st- they had to stay in it. By staying that good, I mean, what they've done, what they, and, and then if you look at it, the success that they've had, I mean, outside of Atlanta, which they're one and nine against this year, you you look at every opponent left on the schedule as an opportunity because of the way that they've fared well. I mean, you wrote it again, they have fared pretty well against some of the National League's best. Yeah, not just some of them, all of them not named the Atlanta Braves. Obviously, they're one right, and nine against Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah. look at every other team that's, either in a playoff spot or still in the hunt. L.A. Dodgers, second-best team in the National League. Marlins split the – went 3-3 three and three against them. Haven't faced Milwaukee. They've got seven games against them, which is going to create some ripple effects in the playoff hunt. Philly, top wild card. They went 7-6 and six against them. Chicago Cubs, number two wild card spot. They went 4-2. and two. Arizona Diamondbacks, the third wild card. They went 4-2. and two. The San Francisco Giants and the Cincinnati Reds, the two teams just below them, the only other teams in the hunt. They split the series, went three and three against them. 500 or better against every team that could potentially be in the NL playoffs except the Atlanta Braves. That's just, it's incredible to think about that. And it also would make it just that much more crushing if they don't end up making the playoffs because they show that they could basically hang with just about everybody else who they would be facing in that, in those, in that postseason. Right. Yeah. And, Prepare yourselves because 
that's the craziness of, of the playoffs. And I remember years now Seattle is a team that finally broke that jinx that made the playoffs, and now they're looking like a playoff team again this year. But you remember, there were more more than once they fell a game short. Yeah. And how agonizing is that when you get that close in a long season? So, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see. If they, every game really, you know, they, they've gone in with the every game matters attitude, but now it really does because look how much it took just to stay in it. And, um, you know, looking at this week, I mean, the, the four with Milwaukee, seven overall coming up with Milwaukee, but specifically this week, the four they have now, and then Atlanta. Can they even, for standings purposes, it doesn't matter as far as, like, beating what it means to beat the Braves, but they need those wins. Can they beat the Braves? Have you seen anything where maybe, just maybe, they can sneak out at least maybe one or two of these to, to pad their record and, and get a few of these valuable wins? Yeah, the hope is... Best case scenario, you take at least three in Milwaukee to set yourself up for to give yourself that little bit of a buffer with the Braves. Right. That's I mean, if they can take three against Milwaukee, and again, they have Jesus Lazaro going today or on Monday, they were recording this. It should be Edward Cabrero either starting or in bulk on Tuesday, and Braxton Garrett on Wednesday, with a to be determined person on Thursday as again they maneuver through openers and monitoring innings and whatnot. These first three games are going to be critical because this is where you have your best three pitchers that you have left going in this series. If they can take three or four and somehow get one against the Braves, go four and three in this week, and then your next week you have three against the Mets and three against Milwaukee to close out your home schedule. Yeah, That's at minimum what you at minimum they need four wins this week, some way, shape, or form. And your best case is probably getting at least three of them against Milwaukee. Yeah, I mean, Atlanta. Who and and right now, do we know already who would project to be uh, on the pitching side? Who would project for Atlanta? And that's I mean, they're probably gonna have to face Strider. I would think at least in one in one of those games, right? I would think so. I'm actually I can check that now. The Braves are playing, and the thing is with the Braves schedule is also interesting because they still have seven games left against the Phillies. They're playing a doubleheader right. on Monday, and then two more games Tuesday and Wednesday. They can actually lock up the division if they take three games against Philly. And knock that out. Uh, yeah. Let me see who they have. Still a lot left, though. Yeah. You, not, you can't. You can't start benching people this early. Oh goodness! But, no, yeah. no, they but, still need to. They still need to hold off for home field advantage. They still need to work towards that. They're gonna. We, we and we knew this going in because obviously the division schedule still. Even though they don't play them as much, it's not 19 anymore. But the division yeah. schedule in the final month, it's very interesting to see how their Braves are. How much of an influence the Braves are going to have on the wild card picture. Like you said, either by beating up the, who are they going to beat up more? Are they going to or or are they? Are they going to beat up the yeah. Phillies more? Are they going to beat up the Marlins more? Maybe some th- somewhere in the middle. And then when the dust settles by next week, where are things going to stand? Yeah, yeah. And uh, on the Braves rotation, uh, they will not face Freed or Strider. Freed is going Tuesday against Philly. Strider is going Wednesday. So they're going to miss both of them during their during the trip to Miami. So Miami so at least gets that's, a that's in Miami. theory. In theory, in theory, that's a good yes. thing. Yeah. In theory, that's a good break on my, on the Marlins front. You still have to but, worry about all those Atlanta bats, though. And that's exactly. the thing. And, and especially with a depleted rotation now, no Sandy going in for sure. And the, what we just talked about. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's unfortunate. But again, this is where the 19, not going down from 19 to 13 in terms of how many times you play your division does help because on a normal, in a regular season that we've had in recent years, you'd be looking at, they got to face Atlanta this weekend, and then probably a trip up to to Atlanta coming up probably toward the end of it. Now that's out of the way, and it's only the one time. 
Correct. So that's going to help a little bit uh, for sure. Correct. Yeah. And then just quick, really quick, just looking through the rest of these playoff teams and their schedules again. Like I said, Philly has seven more games against Atlanta, including what they're doing right now. Uh, the Marlins, it's three with Atlanta, seven with the Brewers, and then six with the Mets, three with the Pirates. Uh, the other, uh, let's see, Arizona has three with Houston, three with the Cubs, two with the Giants, and then three apiece with the Yankees and White Sox and four with the Mets. And the Cubs have three with Atlanta. Huh, Atlanta's getting going to really be impacting this playoff race. Three with Atlanta, three with the Brewers, and three with the Diamondbacks, and then six with the Rockies, three with the Pirates. So yeah. Atlanta literally is playing what looks like basically every three of the four teams that are still involved in the in the wild card hunt with between the Phillies, the Cubs, and the Marlins. So between that and the Marlins with playing seven against the Brewers, we could see some impact between heck, who even wins the NL Central depending on what yeah. the Marlins do against the Brewers. Because the Brewers are only, I think, two games up heading into the week against the Cubs. So yeah. they've got oh, – yeah. yeah, so Central is still very, very well up for grabs as well, depending on if Miami does what it needs to do to get into the playoffs. I'm sure being the being two people on this pod, on this uh, show that, um, that have covered the Marlins, have been through a lot of the miserable years, you know, just the sports runners, it is good to have something interesting. And I'm sure they've, you're – Probably in that sense, it's a good thing for you that you've been through finally being able to be part of a playoff hunt. Yeah. I mean, I remember fam famously a little funny inside story we'll share of a year that we were at the uh, winter meetings and Clark Spencer, a former uh, writer for the Herald, I don't crack the joke to all the writers that were off to the postseason. Like, I'm really happy for you guys who know what it's like to cover playoff baseball. Right? I really have because <laughs> it had been a long time for him. Let me tell you, it been I think I think he hadn't been well since '03. Yeah, since so three, so so yeah, so you're, so you're you may you may be even if they don't make it to the postseason, it's still that just to have that day to day now in September is pretty good and it's good material for for everybody at both on our end and for the fans as well. But let's close it up uh, by talking a little bit uh, about uh, two other playoff teams in the Marlins organization, and that's uh, the minor leagues, Jupiter and Pensacola are both postseason bound. Before we get to that, though, one little note of business. This is going to be the last week you can hear us on Fish Bites as a audio pod. Now, don't panic. That doesn't mean that the show is, is getting canceled or anything like that. We'll just be a video now, so you'll be able to watch us instead of instead of only listening to us. It won't be available in the pod format, but wanted to let everybody know out there that listens as, has listened and watched this show for some time now. We appreciate it. But just a heads up, this week will be the last one. On, on Apple, uh, on Spotify, on all the places that will come at you as a pod. It'll doubt be, and that's why I called it earlier the Fish Fights Show instead of the Fish Fights mm -hmm. Pod. I'm trying to trying to get in the habit. But going back to Jupiter and going back to Pensacola here, Jordan, two playoff teams already in the minors. Maybe the the major league team catches up. But um, you did a nice uh, thorough breakdown that is available to read at MiamiHerald.com on these two teams and not just about them making the playoffs because in the minor leagues, but it's more about the prospects who, who is on these teams. If, if people haven't been really taking a look yet at Jupiter or Pensacola this year and been seeing their, uh, your weekly minor league report that you do so well, tell them a little bit about who, why those two teams are in the postseason and who are their top prospects. I, I don't, I see 
a bunch of good pitchers, of course, at, at on the Jupiter level. I don't know if you were going to start with them or Pensacola, but let's start with Jupiter. Yeah, Noble I'll start Meyer with- and, the, and Thomas White and those guys. Yeah, I'll start with Jupiter. It's their first time making the playoffs since 2012. That was the year that Stanton and Yelich and all of those big names were part of that team when they were the high A affiliate for the Marlins. They're the single A affiliate now. They moved. They were demoted down there a couple years ago when uh, minor league baseball did all of its reorganizing. But yeah, so seven of the Marlins' top 30 prospects, according to MLB Pipeline, play for Jupiter. A lot of them are guys who were just drafted this year. Uh, four of those seven, in fact. Uh, first round pick Noble Meyer, competitive balance pick Thomas White, uh, second round pick outfielder Kemp Alderman, infielder and infielder Brock Badenberg were are the draftees. And you also have uh, last year's second round pick Jacob Miller, a right handed pitcher, uh, Juan De La Cruz, who was an international signing a couple years back, and infielder Ian Lewis, who was an, an international signing a couple years back. Those are the main seven. Again, there's been a lot, there's always a lot of movement, but those are the main seven who are still there. Uh, I'll talk a little bit mainly about Meyer on the Meyer on the pitching side from the draft picks. He's only pitched, I believe it's seven innings so far. Again, he's a high school kid, played a whole high school season. So he's made three starts there, but again, they're only giving him two, two, two to three inning spurts just to make sure his arm's still going and giving him the taste of what professional baseball is like, but they're not stretching it out completely just because of the workload he's had. Plus the time off he's had from, the end of high school to draft and then getting back in the pro ball. But uh, three starts in Jupiter, giving up three runs on nine hits, struck out nine over seven innings. Uh, Thomas White's pitched three and two-thirds innings, only had two starts there. He was a little bit behind Meyer in terms of the ramp up in terms of getting back. And of the position players, Kemp Alderman, uh, power-hitting righty out of Ole Miss, uh, he's struggled overall. He was hitting only 205 since debuting July 26th. But over his last 21 games, he's his average is up to 247, nine extra base hits in that span, seven doubles, a home run. Again, home runs are hard to hit in those Florida State League ballparks, uh, 12 RBI. And then the other guy who I really want to touch on, Ian Lewis. He's been uh, – he's only hitting 225 this year, but he's been really tapping into power this year. He's a little more in the underside, uh, on the underside side. Uh, but even with that, 30 of his 95 hits are extra bases, 19 doubles, six triples, five homers, and he's stolen 33 bases and scored 70 runs. And one of my favorite stats from this year, I think I wrote about a couple weeks ago, he had a five stolen base game without recording a hit. He walked twice and right. yeah. he walked twice and got on twice via error and managed to basically steal his way around the base path once he got on base. And the only real comp for that in the big leagues was Ricky Henderson back in the day. I think he walked three or four times and they had a couple times where he stole twice after getting on base. So Ian Lewis, uh, he's the Marlins number 30 prospect. He's one of the up and comers from the Bahamas. He's basically Jazz's little brother, just as a comp in terms of, of friendships. And Jazz has been watching out for him in, in the from the big leagues and giving him advice. So he's a guy who still on the younger side, but definitely one to watch down the road. And then to quickly go into double-A Pensacola, and remember, the Blue Wahoos won the Southern League last year, back when right. – and Yuri was a big part of that. That's he ended problem, up coming, right? he came back from injury and and helped pitch in both of their big series there and was a big reason for them getting into the playoffs because the way playoffs work for the minor leagues is they break the season up into two halves. The team with the best record in the first half automatically secures the playoff spot. The team with the best record in the second half gets the second playoff spot. 
So the Blue Wahoos, both last year and this year, got their playoff spot by being the best team in their division in the Southern League in the first half of the season. So they had their they've had their playoff spot locked up for months. And they've and honestly they've just kept it rolling all, all season long. But they have six of the Marlins top prospects still with them. On the pitching side, it's Patrick Monteverde and Evan Fitterer, uh, catcher Will Banfield, infielders Jacob Berry and Nassim Nunez, and outfielder Victor Mesa Jr. Bunch of names that we've talked about throughout this year and last year as well. A quick note, uh, Jacob Berry, he's on the minor league injured list, so I don't know what his availability will be when the playoffs start for them next week. But still, regardless, he got called up to double-A midseason, but Marlins' first-round pick last year, hitting 248 there with a 743 OPS, five doubles, five home runs, 22 RBI in 28 games. Victor Mesa Jr., I feel like I talk about this kid every week in my minor league roundup. He's just – he's set single yeah, exactly. No, he he hit for a cycle this year, and he's already and he set career highs this year with 18 home runs. His previous single season high was five. Yeah, he has 73 RBI. Previous high was 71. 72 runs scored. Previous high was 66, and he's still hitting. And he still has a 728 OPS. Uh, Monteverde and Nunez were the Marlins All Star Futures Game representatives. It's good uh, to see. It's good to see. Not to cut you off. But it's yeah. good to see at least one of the Mesa brothers has has yes. is, is starting to progress to the point where maybe he's getting closer and closer to potentially to that call up at some point. Yeah, because you know, I mean, I, I remember how big that was back in the day when they were starting to start this whole rebuild. Yeah, and, it, it, and we kind of and we kind of said it. We kind of said it over and over that we thought we felt we had a good feeling Junior would be the one yes. to do it just because he. You know, because he'd grow up, play. You grow up here in, in the baseball sense and all that, and now you're finally seeing him get closer. That's good. Good to see his strides. Yeah, yeah the, back to just a quick rundown of these last couple guys. Monteverde and Nunez were the All Star Futures Games representatives. Monteverde's broke had a breakout year. He was sort of a sort of basically looking like a depth piece his first couple of years. Now this year, 20 starts for Pensacola, sub three ERA, 110 strikeouts in 112 innings. Nunez. We've, he's known for his speed in the slip defense. Uh, he has, I think it's uh, 45 stolen bases and 51 attempts. He's starting to show some power on offense. Uh, he has four of his six career home runs this year, 11 doubles, 40 RBI, 77 runs scored. And then Will Banfield. It looked like for so long that he was just going to be basically a forgotten piece here. He was, I forget if he was competitive balance pick or second round pick that first year of this organization's drafting. And he's finally putting it together offensively. 22 home runs in double A, 73 RBI, 68 runs scored. And he's hitting 264 with almost an 800 OPS. He was barely flirting with 600 OPS for his career heading into this year. And it was his second year in double A. And I was like, if he hasn't put something together this year, I don't know if he's going to. And he's what do you finally, think changed? I mean, have you, have you, has anyone told you like kind of like what what, what uh, do you think changed that finally? I mean, some guys I know it comes in late, but yeah, yeah, no. So he started showing strides in sep in late August, early September last season. He changed his stance a little bit. Started hmm. working with uh, their hitting coach Matt Snyder, who is up there. Double A was with him last year as well in High A and Beloit. So he the two of them worked very closely toward the end of the year and. They figured out things with his stance, and once he started showing that success toward the end of last season, his confidence came back. Restored, yeah. Yeah, and between that and his 
work behind the play. He's known as a defensive minded catcher with pop. Yeah. So now yeah, that that he's that the problem. Right. Yeah. No. So now that he's showing both sides of it, it's a matter of when he's able. Now it's just a matter of when he's going to be able to move up the levels because they have uh, Paul McIntosh, I believe he's still up in AAA. Uh, and you got to figure out what the Marlins are doing big term, long term in the big leagues with Jacob Songs and Nick Fortes. That's going to be a very interesting development this offseason. It's just the Marlins catchers, how they plan to address that situation going forward between, I mean, Banfield's not going to be in the big leagues next year. I'm not saying that whatsoever, but seeing if he goes up to AAA next year, which based off what he's done this year, he should be up in AAA next year what they do with the group above them and what their confidence level is in Bamfield for just moving forward long-term with what, how much, how much they feel like they could potentially use him down the road. Yeah. I mean, it's a good turnaround because again, he's another player that like you mentioned, there was so many expectations at the beginning when he got drafted and then the defense was never the issue. We always thought at the beginning, I know some people were even saying, do we have another defensively at least? Do they have another guy kind of like Ramuto at the time that you know just that quickness, you know, the, the pop time, you name it, just to get runners up? But the bat was the question, and it, for a long time it looked like maybe this kid's never going to put it together. So maybe the change in stance, like you said, I mean that's that's good. That, that adds to that catcher depth, and maybe you know that especially right now that that whole position in flux going into the near future too. That's going to be going to be key, but. All right. Well, th- we appreciate everybody, as always, like we said before, for listening, watching this show. Jordan's in Milwaukee. He'll be there uh, at home later on covering the Braves series. And next week, it, I feel like we're, I'm signing off every episode the same way. The Let's see. We'll, we'll bring it to you the next week. Uh, tune in. Stay, you know, same, same time, same channel. Let's find yeah. out where the Marlins are at a week from now. But again, every like, like it is, the next game is always the most important game. The next week, always the most important a uh, week and series for this team as they continue to fight for that playoff spot and down the stretch. And again, it, it is cool when you have a situation like this and a playoff stretch to cover and, and to watch. So let, let's see if they can get through it and, and, and land in there and then make it interesting on that two out of three series potentially with uh, maybe, maybe the Cubs, maybe those Brewers that they're facing uh, right now this week. So for Jordan McPherson, who's on the road, I'm Andre Fernandez. Check us out next week when we bring you more uh, Marlins on Fish Bites.